0: Well, thank you, Nogazika, and thank you, Michelle and uh, Cheryl and Anna. I often find after the watching the kids' spotlight, like, I'm like, I probably should have watched that before the message for some ideas, but uh, I know that I, we've also heard a lot of adults say, you know what, I, I really take something away from that. And, um, and that really is what we're talking about. How do we take something that may be an r- ordinary, routine part of our lives, and take it out of our lives, so that we can turn it over to God. And uh, so let me ask you, Has this ever happened to you, where um, you go up to the fridge, you open it up, and you peer in, and you recognize that the entire thing is full, and you're like, hey honey, is there anything to eat in the house? No, it's never, never happened to you? Maybe it's the kids that, that do that. Or you go and stand in your pantry, and you look at, you know, floor-to-ceiling, wall-to-wall shelves full of food. And it's like texting Tina going, "Um, is there anything for lunch? Never happened to you either? I guess I'm all alone. What about this one? Remember in those pre-COVID days, you'd go to the mall and you'd walk around and you'd go to the food court. It's like 3 o'clock in the afternoon and, and you see lineups at all of the different places there and there's everybody at their tables and they're enjoying their food and suddenly you're like... You know, I think I could go for a burger right now, too. There's something strange that goes on between us and our relationship with food. And COVID hasn't actually impacted our love for food at all. Some of you have kids at home, and you probably even wonder how they ever make it through a day at school without going to the refrigerator. Well, studies have shown that kids have a school stomach and a home stomach. Or we have the availability of skip the dishes. Uh, in fact, um, when Pastor Adam was giving me some sermon suggestions, he, or sermon title suggestions, he said, skip the dishes, not the Jesus. And, uh, you know, we again, we, we, we may sit at home and we may be isolated and we're locked down and we're kind of frustrated, but we can just go online and order pretty much whatever we want. Um, we've done takeout. Uh, at our house, uh, probably uh, more often than we should, and Friday night, we're sitting around, Tina's day kind of got unraveled, didn't go the way she she wanted it to, and she was late getting home, and so she just called and said, you know, should I just pick something up on my way home, and uh, we said sure, and I'm not going to tell you what we got, because it's kind of embarrassing, but... Um, so she's there and we're all like, where is she? This is taking forever. And it was like 10 minutes and then 15 minutes and we're kind of wondering and she gets home and we're like, man, it's about time. Like we're starving. And, uh, and then she says, well, it's a good thing I got there when I did, because there's all these people that came in after me. So I got really busy. She goes, but even before that, it was just like one skip the dishes delivery driver after another. And this is kind of part of our culture. In fact, When we travel to the U.S., one of the restaurants we like to go to is the Cheesecake Factory. Now, some of you who have been there know exactly where I'm going with this already. This is not to be confused at all with the Cheesecake Cafe, because they're they're not even uh, comparable in that sense. But the Cheesecake Factory's menu, get this, is 21 pages long. There's 250 menu items. I like going there, but I just have like an anxiety attack trying to figure out what I'm going to even eat there. Now, because of my diabetes, I always ask for a nutrition menu, um, which is always a really bad idea because I can pretty much ruin everybody's choice of, uh, of dinner with just looking up the calorie content. Like, Fettuccini alfredo or whatever that has like 2600 calories which is more than the daily require um, you know daily recommended intake it's crazy there's just tons of food and then if you do go there and you are a little bit worried about um, the quantity of the calories not they have actually like a two-page skinny-licious menu for those that are being a little bit more cautious of that oh and and if you don't have enough to eat which is um, pretty much unheard of in this restaurant. They have 34 flavors of cheesecake uh, to um, smooth between the cracks, so to speak. Any way you look at it, our culture is food-obsessed. We like food. I like food. I often say I think I like it a little too much. It's interesting during COVID, and maybe you've had a similar experience. Um, back in March, when we were working from home, and this, you know, it's a pandemic. We've never experienced this, and there was tons of stress. And I lost three or four pounds in the first month. Well, when I went back, kind of working from home in November, since then I've added that and some more back. I know you think it's just the camera adding a, a few pounds, but but this is real. Um, the issue is. For all of us, when it comes to food, um, what we know and experience about food, I think, is this. First of all, too often, our bodies become our master. And the desire that we have for food has a power over us that we often don't like to admit. And secondly, we often are impacted by what psychologists call the pleasure principle— where it becomes this driving motivation. And so in psychology, the pleasure principle is the driving force that seeks instant gratification of all needs, wants, and urges. In other words, the pleasure principle strives to fulfill our most basic and primitive urges, including hunger, thirst, anger, and sex. Simply put, if we have a desire, we want to satisfy it right away. And the problem, of course, is that This leads to so many other issues like debt, because you can have it now and pay later, and all sorts of addictions. I have to have it now becomes a little bit of our mantra. And the sad part is, marketing takes advantage of that. I mean, how many commercials do we see in maybe just an hour of TV watching that do this? Maybe you've seen this commercial if you've been watching uh, any hockey uh, this week, which is on like every other night and maybe every night. But uh, Tim Hortons has a new sandwich. Do you know what it's called? Cravables. Because, well, what are they, in, you know, what are they saying? This, this is something that's so good that we're going to create a craving for it. Well, that's the world that our fleshly bodies live in. And thankfully, the Bible speaks to these issues that we face and offers insight and a different perspective and maybe even a response that may be surprising to you. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, speaks to a practice that allows us the opportunity to break free from the power of our bodies and the control that our desires have over us. And this practice is the practice of fasting. And we're in a section of the Sermon on the Mount that begins in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. And here in this passage, Jesus is addressing three commonly practiced acts of piety or acts of devotion. So giving, we've looked at, prayer already of the last couple weeks, and today, fasting. And verse 1 of chapter 6 is a verse then that is really common to all three. And Jesus says there, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so here, once again, we see Jesus is warning his followers not to do the right things for the wrong reasons. So he's really cautioning us to watch our motives. And what we do, especially when it comes to these acts of devotions, must come from a properly motivated heart. Do we do what we do to be seen by others? To be seen as righteous because we are doing righteous things? Or do we do what we do to express hearts that are devoted to God? And so first of all, let's look at this from the perspective of what does Jesus have to say about fasting. So Jesus on fasting. Now I want to just say this right up front. I want to address the elephant in the room because I think that, well, there's really nobody here and there's no elephants. But, you know, (laughs) metaphorically speaking, the fact is I believe that very few of us fast. Most of us, in fact, don't. Now, maybe you want to prove me wrong, and you'll send me uh, some emails telling me about your practices, and I would actually welcome that. Now, I don't have any of the stats to back this up. I I think somebody once said that 80% of stats are made up on the spot, Um, but uh, let me try this. I'm going to guess this, that if we did a survey of our congregation, probably 50% would say that they've never fasted. Or they never fast or have never fasted. It's just just not even something that's occurred to them. It's never been on their radar. Maybe 25% would just rarely fast, uh, very occasionally over the course of their lifetime. Maybe, I'm going to say, 15% fast maybe once a year. Maybe it's like 5% that do it a few times a year. Maybe 3% that do it once a month. and Maybe 2% once a week. And that's probably being generous. Now, I'm not saying that to be hard on us or to make any of us feel bad, but just to acknowledge that we are in good company, that if we don't fast, we're really probably in the majority. And I want to say this, that in many respects, I take responsibility for that. I think it's my fault. We have very few sermons about fasting, I haven't always been responsible for kind of the teaching content at, at TCC, but in the 12 years that I'm here, I can, I can think of maybe a handful of times that we've had sermons on fasting. And, and think about it. It was always a little bit awkward. If we had this sermon on fasting, and then we invited everybody to stay for this massive all-you-can-eat brunch, there was always a little bit of a disconnect. And so maybe we just avoided it for obvious reasons. But I'll admit to you that I rarely fast. And so it's really awkward for me to stand up here and say, you should do this if I don't do it myself. Now, I think I have an out, I have an excuse. You probably know that I have type 1 diabetes, and I have had it now for over 12 years. Uh, But even previous to that, fasting just wasn't really on my radar. But now fasting can really mess me up. I even tried it this week and and really kind of paid the consequences for the rest of the day. Now, while that may be a reason, I've come to the conclusion, as I've kind of processed this this week, is that that's not an excuse. And there are elements of fasting that I could do and really need to do. But I think it's because we haven't had many sermons. We haven't had many conversations. We, we, it just hasn't been something that's sort of front and center. We talk so much about reading your Bible and prayer and silence and solitude. Those are all great things. But we have neglected fasting. And as a result, it's become a neglected practice, not only maybe in our church, um, but in many churches as well. Now... Thankfully, I think that there's a bit of a rediscovery of this practice for all sorts of good reasons. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Because it seems strange to me that we would use the Bible, we would teach from the Bible, we would preach from the Bible, we'd say we were people of the Word, and then we would miss the numerous references throughout Scripture about God's people fasting. And Jesus himself fasted. At the start of his ministry, he fasted for 40 days. And if you read this account in the Gospels, there's a, this great line that he fasted for 40 days, and when the fast was over, he was hungry. <laughs> Obviously. But Jesus not only practiced fasting. He taught about fasting, and that's the passage that we're looking at this morning. And so Jesus here makes two assumptions that I think we can get out out of the way right away. Number one, it's the same thing I said about prayer a couple weeks ago, but fasting is assumed to be a normal practice. And so just like giving and prayer, verse 16 begins, when you fast. It's not a question of if you fast. There is an assumption that that, um, followers of Jesus will fast. Verse 17 as well begins, but when you fast. And so there's just this assumption that this would be an ordinary practice, a normal practice, and that Jesus expects his followers to fast. The second assumption that Jesus makes here is that we probably, like some of the other acts of devotion, we may practice it for the wrong reasons. There are wrong reasons to fast. Sometimes uh, we've done this ourselves. Maybe we think that we can fast in order to kind of manipulate or control God in some ways. And maybe we've even confused it sometimes with losing weight. We'll talk about that in a second. But Jesus here highlights the worst of the wrong reasons, and that is to show off or to show others. And he calls out the hypocrites here again, or these actors, who he says they intentionally look somber, or they look gloomy, they just look downcast, they they just look like they haven't been eating. And they disfigure their faces. I don't even know exactly what that would look like, but to show others that they're fasting. I mean, can you even imagine wanting people to think that we're more righteous than we really are? That we're more devoted than we really are? And so we kind of fake it? So that others will think more highly of us than they ought to? And Jesus basically says, listen, if, if that's what you want, then that's what you'll get. Your reward is, in fact, the applause and recognition of others. But Jesus contrasts this wrong way of fasting with the right way. And he says in verse 17, he says, but when you fast, put oil on your head. So, you know, put a little gel, put some cream, put something in there, some product, and wash your face. Like, clean up a little bit, bring a little life to to your body, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting. Almost this recognition that it that it could have a physical impact on us uh, over time. But it's not obvious to others that are fasting. But only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And once again, we see that in these practices, the reward is God himself. Intimacy with the Father. And so I can truly say that our stomachs may be empty, but our hearts are full. And so, about fasting. You've got questions, and I've got some answers. Let's talk about some questions that we might have. Well, so who should fast? I think I've already made this fairly clear, but in case we've missed it, I believe every follower of Jesus should fast in some way. And what you choose to do is between you and God, but as long as you do it for the right reasons. And we'll talk about that in a second. But as followers, right, um, we've looked at, you know, we are giving and we give to the poor, we give to the needy, we pray to the Father, and we fast. Among other things that we do, of course, but that's our context here in Matthew chapter 6 but as followers who walk with Jesus who walk in the way of Jesus we should intentionally practice the spiritual discipline of fasting if we really want it to be transformed by the power and the presence of Jesus when we fast we acknowledge that what we're, what we're prayerfully anticipating is that God is going to do a heart work in our lives. There's something that shifts in our spiritual lives when we fast. And on top of all of this, believers should fast because the list of those who have fasted in the Bible really reads like a, a who's who of those in the Bible. Moses and David and Elijah and Esther and Daniel and Paul and of course Jesus that I already mentioned just to name a few but it was it was a normal practice for them and this is also true of church history some of the most recognizable names uh, in church from church history Fasted. Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. And I just say all of that simply to say that if we choose to fast, then we are in good company. And it's a shared experience across centuries of followers of Jesus. So who should fast? Virtually everyone. But what is fasting? Now, All this time I've been talking, I may have wrongly assumed that we already know what it is. But simply put, fasting is intentionally refraining from eating food for a set period of time. It's intentionally refraining from eating food for a set period of time. This is the empty stomach part of the sermon title this morning. And in our kind of food-obsessed culture, our foodie culture, if you will, this is not easy. Because food is all around us. There's lots of it, and we generally exercise very little self-control around it. Now, it might also clarify for us if we think about what fasting is not. And as I've already said, it's, it's, a, fair, it's a very neglected practice, but I think it's neglected because we have some misunderstandings about it. And fasting is not a, a hunger strike. They're not the same. A hunger strike, the goal there is for power, it's for control, it's for drawing attention maybe to, to a cause. It really has a political purpose. That's not what biblical fasting is. And fasting is not abstaining. You see, there is a difference uh, between fasting and abstaining and, and, and um we were having a conversation probably about a week or more ago with, uh, with Anne and Marnie and myself. We were talking about fasting and, and Anne was very adamant about saying, you know what, this isn't about these other things that we've now sometimes attributed to fasting. But fasting is always connected to food. And so I thought, oh, and I dove into that a little bit, and then um, I, uh, I, I heard a message from John Mark Homer, of course, and uh, and he makes this distinction, and I found it super helpful because there are lots of things that we might do that really are not helpful to our spiritual walk, and avoiding them is always a good practice. And so sometimes you'll hear people saying, I've done this myself. Uh, they'll say something like, I'm going to give up, you know, blank for Lent. I'm going to give up social media. I'm going to give up um, chocolate. I'm going to give up coffee or something like that for Lent. And if we properly understand that, it's that we would then say is what we're actually doing there is abstaining, not fasting. Because fasting in the Bible is almost always connected to food. And I say that almost always because it's like 99% and there's one time in... 1 Corinthians 7 that you might want to read as husband and wife and figure out what uh, what that's all about. But the point is this, abstaining from some of those things is absolutely good. In 1 Peter 2:11 Peter writes, "Dear friends, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul." Those sinful desires are at war against our soul. I like how John Mark Comer's put talks about this abstaining from practices. He says that do violence to your heart's love for Jesus. Do you know anything about that? Know anything that you do that does violence to your love for Jesus that draws you away from Jesus instead of drawing you to Jesus? Then it's probably a good idea to abstain from that. So just call it that. Say, I'm abstaining from TV. I'm abstaining from gaming. Just don't call it fasting. Thirdly, we might say that fasting is not a diet or weight loss plan. Now, if you go uh, to the internet and you go to Google and you type in intermittent fasting, you will find no end of hits to that because it's all the rage right now. And it's a classic example of doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Don't ever confuse fasting with dieting. But back to what fasting is. Is there any, um, is, if there are wrong reasons to fast, what is the right reason? What's the purpose of intentionally refraining from eating food for a set period of time? And ultimately, we fast from food in order to feed on the Holy Spirit. To orient our whole body, mind and spirit to God. And so fasting in the Bible always has spiritual purposes. It's always about creating a hunger for God. John Piper simply defines uh, fasting in his book, a hunger for God, a whole body hungering for God. Now, if what I said earlier about our bodies being our master is true, and I believe it is, or at least that food has power over us or more power over us than we care to admit, then we can find some freedom through fasting. So, fasting is not eating, but it's so much more than that. Very practically, we take the time that we would normally spend eating and we spend it with God. And so spiritually, we fast to break the power of some of the desires of our bodies. And this is the real battle. The real battle we face in fasting is learning to say no. And it is a battle. That's why it's hard. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to avoid hard things. And it's a battle because when we decide to fast, we're really taking on our flesh. And it's even harder when we have been always trained to say yes, right? If it feels good, do it. And so if we have little to no self-control, we have become formed by instant gratification. And that's not good for us on multiple levels. And so we fast simply because we want more of God, And fasting requires sacrifice, which is something that God continually calls us to do. And so in fasting, in simple terms, we say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. And fasting is one way that we can actively humble ourselves and devote our energy to prayerfully seeking God's face. We acknowledge some of the idols that we worship, and we repent from that, and we turn to God. What are some of those idols? We may have the, you know, pleasure itself can become an idol. It says we want to feel good, and we want to feel good all the time. Maybe control is an idol, and we don't want to give up control. We want to make our own decisions. Maybe it's pride. Uh, Richard Foster, who's written, Extensively about the spiritual disciplines, and in particular um, about fasting, in his book *The Celebration of Discipline* or *A Celebration of Discipline*, it's a, it's a classic work uh, in this area. But listen to what he says. He says more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things. But in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. David writes, I humbled my soul with fasting. Psalm 69, verse 10. So anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. Do you ever be angry? Then we will realize that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. But we can rejoice in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. And so when we fast and these things are revealed, it is in fact a good thing for us now i don't have time to get into this but read if you will galatians 5 13 to 26 and in there paul simply says at one point he says you are not to do whatever you want and i referred to this passage a couple of weeks ago on prayer and the transformative impact of prayer but there, really the question ultimately comes down to friends is are we going to feed the flesh or are we going to feed the spirit Are we going to say no to the flesh, and are we going to say yes to the Spirit of God at work in our lives? That that just simply can boil down to that. Will we say yes to these things? And so why do we fast? Number one, it's so that we can turn from these fleshly things, these fleshly desires, to set our hearts fully on God. Now, I could spend a whole sermon just unpacking this, But simply put, the goal of fasting is to turn ourselves from worldly things and to set our minds and hearts fully on God, to hunger and thirst for God instead of the food that satisfies our appetites. You see, when I go to the fridge, I'm not usually hungry. I'm going to find something that is going to give me momentary pleasure. And what if, Every time I go to the fridge or looked in the pantry for a snack, it prompted me to orientate my heart back towards God. That's what fasting will do. And that's why we fast is so that our fleshly desires um, would be turned away from and we could set our hearts fully on God. It's the empty stomach and it's the full heart. The second reason we would fast is to pray. Now, again, I could say so much, and this could take up an entire sermon, but I'm simply going to say this, that someone once said this to me, and Marnie had shared this with me, so I'll credit her, and I don't know where she heard it from, maybe another pastor, but it was just simply this. Fasting without prayer is dieting. And We already talked about that being the wrong reason to fast. And so fasting and prayer are, are so intricately connected that you can't kind of do one, in a sense, without the other. And as you know, there's a variety of reasons to pray. And if you read through the Bible and see the references to prayer, um, you'll, or sorry, to fasting, you're going to see it in the context of prayer for so many different things. Like to confess sin and express remorse for sin. This act of repentance. This is Nehemiah 1 praying when he fasted and prayed, and then he confessed the sins of him, the, the people, and he took ownership himself for that. We might pray to grieve. After Saul died, they they declared a seven-day fast. We might pray to cry out because we're in a time of crisis or desperation. And this is true of what Esther did when she declared uh, uh, that the entire nation should fast, a complete fast, no food or water, for three days, and that they should call out to God for his help. And we pray to know God's direction. This is the church in Acts. When they were gonna do a new were wondering about a new ministry, they gathered together and they fasted and they prayed. And then they set apart Barnabas and Paul for the work that they had been called. Or when they were calling elders into leadership, they fasted and prayed. And so if you're following along in the McShane reading plan, you would have read some of those even in this past week, where, where um, the early church on multiple occasions prayed and fasted for God's direction and then lastly we pray to express humility and dependence on God in Ezra you would have read this this week as well the exiles were returning from Babylon and in order to pray for safe passage they fasted and they prayed and so why do we fast number one we turn from fleshly things to set our hearts fully on God number two to pray and number three to identify with the poor now, you could turn to Isaiah 58, um, verses um, well, 1 through 9, but um, really the core of it, and I'd like to read it, but I know we're, we're running uh, a little bit late here. So I just want to um, draw this to a close by saying this, that um, when we talk about to, uh, fasting to identify with the poor, Glenn Stassen, in his book, writes, fasting helps us identify with the hungry of the earth and repent for our greed and lack of concern. Now, pretty direct, but those are heavy and important reasons for us to fast. We can't just slough that off, right? We have the ability to go to our fridges and our pantries and get and order, skip the day, and do all of those things probably almost whenever we want. But for people who are poor or people who have no food or people who are homeless who don't even have a fridge to go to, They don't have those options. And so when we intentionally say, I am choosing not to eat this meal or these meals, we identify with people who have less than us. Well, you've heard enough from me, and I'm going to ask Ann Cuen to come. She's going to just share a little bit about her experiences with fasting and what she has learned, uh, even fairly recently. And so, Anne, just come and share uh, with us what uh, you've prepared there.
1: Good morning, TCC. Thanks for letting me pop into your living rooms this morning. fast and pray these activities are tied together in the bible often to be honest i have been growing throughout the years in my experience and understanding of praying but the idea of fasting has stayed in the realms of obscurity until recently in the past i was being told from health experts that i should eat often and that going without food might even be detrimental to my health i know for myself that when I did not eat, I had anecdotal evidence of that being true. I can recall a time a number of years ago when I decided that I would forego breakfast to try fasting. I felt terrible. I was shaky and I had a headache within a few hours. I thought I must be ill and I decided to eat. I had a bowl of cereal and a coffee a few hours later and surprise, surprise, I no longer felt unwell. I concluded through this experience and many others like it that fasting food was not for me, even concluding eventually that I was physically unable to do it. Well, we are blessed as God's children that he doesn't leave us in our wrong thinking for too long. This past summer, I received a diabetes health diagnosis and set out to learn how to better manage my blood sugar levels. I was fascinated to learn that fasting is being recommended to this end and for continued lifelong good health. This truth really resonated with me, a spiritual discipline that was good for the spirit and for the body at the same time. Now that sounded like God. I have learned this past six months a lot about the science and the how-tos of fasting and why fasting can make you feel sick and how to minimize these symptoms. I have tried fasting in many different durations and have experimented with what works well for me in the context of this season of being a wife and a mom. I am certainly still a rookie at fasting, but it is now a skill that I know that I can use with some degree of confidence when I want to get away with Jesus to fast and pray. I have been challenged to fast from other things than food in past years. I have I have fasted from things like from things like Facebook, excuse me, TV watching, spending money, and even driving. All of these varied ways of abstaining have been beneficial. Some of these things I even most left, mostly left permanently behind, like Facebook. Others I found a renewed appreciation for in my heart, like driving. My experience with fasting food, however, has been different. Fasting food seems to be a universal benefit to the spirit, a growth of reliance on God, a growth of trust in his goodness, A growth of confidence that with God, you can do hard things. And in my 2020, this was a very needed thing. In 2020, my mom died suddenly. I, like all of you, faced a new unknown world called COVID. I received a troubling health diagnosis that pointed towards the very illness that took my mom's life at an early age. And in this fire, God lovingly pointed me in the direction of life, the direction of him through this invitation to fasting. And that leads me to proclaim in my life 2021, the year of hope. These familiar words I hear God whispering in my ear from Jeremiah 2911. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. These words are my comfort, and they are the cry of my heart. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Anne. That was awesome for sharing your story I know it's fresh and I know some of that's still pretty raw Um, and you said a lot of great things but here's one thing that struck me that you said and I wonder if this isn't true for you is we have maybe one bad experience and we just dismiss it and I bet there's you know I gave statistics that were probably pretty harsh earlier that I just made up quite honestly but um, uh, the reality is is maybe some of you have tried it and you said well it didn't work and it was like you're, you're looking for something or you felt bad or you're physically you just thought that wasn't a very good experience. And really what our invitation to you is to just invite you in to recognize how important this could be, how transforming it could be, and to, to know that there is a how and a when to fast. And I do want to just share with you some practical um, ideas to close. And the main thing is, is that whatever you do, you just dedicate it to God. That you ask the Holy Spirit to be your companion and your guide on the journey. To say, I don't know exactly how to do this or when I'm going to do this, but just God just guide me with that. And Anne would use the illustration often where she would say fasting food is similar to lifting weights. And so it's helpful to start small and allow those muscles to grow. And then you can increase your weight or in the case of fasting, maybe increase the length of time. And so, whenever you're going to fast, you should go slow and steadily and build up your fasting times. Don't start with something that you've never done and, uh, and, and it's just too much. Now, although it's not impossible, it's really not advisable to jump into a multi day fast. And really, you should always check with your doctor, particularly if you have some health concerns or you're on some medications. But ultimately, how and when you fast is between you and God, He will honor whatever you choose. And so just some real quick practical suggestions. Maybe it's just as simple as giving up snacking at a certain time of day. Maybe you're the one who has dinner, and then throughout the evening you're like, oh, I'm going to make some popcorn, or I'm going to go for a bag of chips, or I'm going I'm to have some other snack. And maybe it's like, you know what, no, I, I'm going to fast from those things. That, that food I'm going to give up. Or you're going to eat um, three meals a day where you say there's going to be no snacking throughout the day. I'm going to just focus on that. And we're going to delay breakfast um, maybe by a couple of hours is another thing you do. And you just kind of spend that morning praying together and then maybe break the fast a little bit later. Um, Maybe you just skip one meal. Maybe it's a sun up to sun down fast where you're not eating anything during the day or a 24 hour fast. Um, Maybe it's a full fast where you're only drinking liquids and you determine the number of days, three, seven. Probably not 40 the way Elijah and Moses and Jesus did. But there are different ways that you can do this. Now here's the point in all of this. Fasting as a practice seems so out of touch in our world. It seems weird and crazy. But it is a practice that we're inviting you to engage in. And it's an invitation. Because nowhere in the scripture is fasting commanded. And it's just an invitation to practice the way of Jesus. And because of that, there is freedom. And so I want to invite you as well to three other things. One is the fasting form tonight that we've mentioned at 7 o'clock on Zoom. Anne will be there. I'll be there. I think Marnie will be there. Maybe some others. And we would just love to just have this conversation. And we would love for you to be honest and say, you know what, I've never done this. And it was kind of intriguing, and I have lots of questions. And as we have this conversation, I hope that your questions will be answered. So really, 7 o'clock tonight on Zoom, go to the website, and you'll see all the details there. Then it's an invitation to fast this week. Now, I sent out this morning with the email that I'm assuming most of you got. It was just a TCC, uh, the the, the, uh, document was titled TCC Week of prayer and fasting. And it's just a double-sided 8.5 by 11 sheet that you can print off. It has some fasting basics that really um, are things that I shared with uh, you already this morning. And then on the back, every day this week, there's just three uh, specific prayer requests to pray for and invite you to pray together with others. And now, even if you're not fasting every day, you could still pray these things every day this week, as we just trust God to do a great thing in our work, whether it's in our children's ministry, our youth ministry, through our adult Ministries, we want to invite you to pray together as a church on these things. So go and uh, open up that document, maybe print it off, and do that. Now, here's the thing this week is practice. This week, you might say, I'm not going to do the snack thing, or I'm going to, I'm going to try to, to, to not eat on Thursday, or whatever it is. Um, and then we're, our invitation is going to be to do that during Lent. To, to say, you know what? Okay, I did that. I tried that. I experimented with that. And, and so this is the week of experimentation and practice. And then maybe when Lent starts in mid, mid-February this is something that you can enter into and really take that time as a significant time as we prepare our hearts for what Jesus will do um, in us and through us during that season. That's the invitation. And we invite you to consider that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son Jesus. We know that Without him, salvation would not be possible. But we thank him for the teaching that we've even looked at this morning. We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount that we have been diving deep into, and it's been uh, so encouraging, and, 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 and the things that we've learned, and the encouragement that we've received, the challenges that have been put before us. And I pray, Father, for this very notion of fasting, this practice of fasting. For many, maybe we've heard messages in the past and maybe we've disregarded it for one reason or another. But I pray, Father, that we would be like the psalmist who wrote, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. And so God, create in us a hunger and a thirst for you, even to the point that we're willing to have empty stomachs so that we might have full hearts and to know that you truly are more than enough. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.